0: Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics, with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Well, Mark, great to be with you again on another episode of Informed Dissent. Yes, we are back. We are back, and tonight we have a recurrent guest. I think this is the third time that we're bringing back Dr. Peter McCullough a freedom fighter, health advocate, uh, Etc. And we're so honored to have him back on. You know what it is, Peter, is we, you, we've we had the primary se- series now with you on twice. And now this is the booster of bringing Dr. McCullough <laughs> back on our show. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what you get. What, what you get now with your booster is you get to educate us about your wonderful new book that just came out with your co-author, John Leak, that we think is going to join us here a little bit late. And the book is The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalizations and death while battling the biopharmaceutical
1: complex and what a wonderful book i can't wait to read it i just ordered it today i think that's true my experience matches yours peter i've been speaking about this from the beginning using stories and what i find in terms of the feedback i get from the audiences and this goes all the way back to june 2020 when i was in washington dc with america's frontline doctors is that people are moved by stories they're not moved by numbers, not primarily. You give them one big stat, they'll remember it, but you give them 10 or 20, they don't remember a single thing. It reminds me of that famous quote by Stalin, you know, a million deaths is a statistic and one death is a tragedy. If you can tell a story about a tragedy, you're gonna gain someone's attention. You give them a story of statistics, they, they will register it for a half a second and then they'll forget. That has been, I think, one of our mistakes a mistake might be true, strong of a word. It's, well, it is. It's a mistake. It's a strategic error from the beginning. because We assumed that we would inform people and that by informing them, they would then be armed and they would respond appropriately. Whereas the other side, the side that <laughs> we've been talking about now for several years, but the one that you just quoted earlier, which provides misinformation, lies, and deception, that side has been telling stories they've been telling stories that have won over people way, way, way more than our information. So I think shifting tactics and speaking to people in a more narrative format, as you're trying to do in this book, and using the metaphor of a crime story, which is apt. It's not only apt, it's also effective. I think that's going to be really a great uh, winner and a great takeaway as we hopefully start to um, make our our methodology, not more truthful, we've always been truthful, but more effective. More accessible. Yes, that's
0: a good word, accessible. You know, Peter was talking about this Dr. Jha, who's the White House COVID uh, point person that uh, Jay Bhattacharya was beaten up in the Wall Street Journal. Hopefully we'll get Peter back. Um, it must've been that third booster shot that really put him down to the
1: count. <laughs> well, if he, had, if he had only had two, he would have been cut off a lot earlier. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so hopefully
0: our our producers will get him get him back on, but we can continue until we have him on. I haven't read
1: the book yet, Mark. Have you? I got a copy of it um, uh, in in Orlando, uh, and I've I've looked through some of it. Uh, I really like it, and I love the narrative style. I think that um, as as Peter said, we are now learning, and I see this in all of the doctors that are speaking now that. We need to take our information and we need to put it into a coherent story. I think that that illustration he made of the conversation that occurred between Johnson and Jaw is a really great example of that. Rather than arguing uh, numbers, rather than putting out a bunch of charts and graphs and regression analysis of the... uh, difference between this treatment and that treatment. You just ask simple questions and you reveal the truth, which is, as he said, this syndicate racket. You who are telling people to stay home, you who are telling doctors not to treat, you who say that you have all of the truth and the facts on your side, how many patients have you treated with this disease? The number is zero. Yeah, same thing with Dr. Fauci. He hasn't treated a patient in a a decade, if not longer. So you can put put all the covers of Harrison's uh, a medical textbook you want as his credentials and justifications for his pronouncements, but put him against one physician who's actually treated patients in the last 20 years and, and the whole narrative collapses. And people understand that. They get that more than they get data and statistics. I,
0: I agree. There's an expression, I, I can't remember who said it, something like, um, uh, you know, the left is is much better articulating really bad ideas uh, Than we are at articulating good ideas. And part of it is they're better at storytelling and we need to get better at storytelling. And as we mentioned before we came on the air, you know, I'm, I'm actively treating COVID patients as we speak. And some of my sickest COVID patients right now are those that have been fully vaccinated and boosted. And the COVID patients that are not vaccinated, and there's plenty of them as well, they seem to recover quite quickly. Now, I don't know if their immune system is just working better and the vaccine somehow impairs the immune system. I've read some articles. There seems to be some evidence of that. I've got an 85-year-old guy right now, diabetic with heart disease, unvaccinated. I came down with COVID a handful of days ago. I used the uh, sequence multi-drug treatment protocol that includes ivermectin, et cetera. And within three, four days, he was without a fever, feeling better, back up and running and feeling really good. And that's that's kind of typical. And I know our friend um, um, uh, Brian Tyson, who is running for Congress in El Centro in in, uh, in California, that's uh, kind of the south the middle south inland san diego area um he's probably the covid king of the united states i think he's treated now something like 10,000 covid patients and has not lost a single patient that he got to early in the uh in the in the illness you get to somebody early and 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 treatment works you wait around and sit around until you can you have trouble breathing and you end up at a hospital and uh, and bad things happen and even today We still see early treatment being suppressed. The narrative in too many areas and the standard protocol with too many physicians is to do nothing but stay at home and isolate yourself. And then if you feel sick enough where you can't breathe, you show up at the hospital. And even today, too many hospitals are still pushing uh, the toxic, ineffective drug remdesivir, and they are happy to do so. And that's the wrong approach. And uh, unfortunately, it's still going on. So there you have it. So we need to be better at telling stories, specific stories about patients that we're taken care of, and, uh, and and to get our message across that way. And we got Peter now, who is rebooted and back with us. And Peter, we were just talking about the need to be better storytellers um, that the left has been doing for such a long period of time. That's
2: so true. So let me pick up on this story. It's it's in the chapter in the U.S. Senate, and uh, you know we're in a sense doing battle with Ashish Ja, who's now the current White House coordinator. And, and we're trying to make the case that we ought to we ought to throw the life ring in the water. We ought to we have a duty to treat. We ought to use the, you know, what we think would help people. And he's very carefully and very politely arguing that we should not. We should wait for more evidence and we don't have enough evidence. And he let us know in the testimony, by the way, the only uh, products that would have enough evidence would be the vaccines. Only the vaccines would have an, big enough trials uh, to work. You know, it's very clear in his mind. So Johnson asked him, hey, have you ever treated a COVID patient? Have you ever seen a COVID patient? And he says, you know, no, I haven't. And then John writes, at that time, he must have felt like an, like an aeronautical engineer who's never flown on a plane. <laughs> or a marriage counselor. Or a marriage counselor that's never been married and uh, you know it's things like that that we get feedback on you know where people want to read something that's that's entertaining and it's a page-turner I had some reports that people on airplanes today they saw people reading our book. So it was a lot of fun. Oh,
0: that's wonderful. Speaking of your book, we have your co-author on, John Leake. John, welcome to Informed Descent. Glad you can join us. I know you were a little late. Of course, the book we're talking about is um, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough and John Leake. And the book is The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalizations and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. So welcome, John. And tell us a little bit about the book and, and why you helped out and why you wrote this thing.
3: Um. Well, I am a true crime author. I've Prior to this, I'd written a few true crime books. Two were published, one was nearing publication, and then SARS-CoV-2 arrived. And it diverted my attention at this gigantic story in the making. And I, I quickly ascertained or perceived that A lot of what we were being told by our public health officials and by our mainstream media just didn't seem plausible to me. There are a number of things that I present in the book, implausibilities, things that just didn't really add up. Um, I began to suspect that a crime was being committed, an organized crime, with elements of, of massive fraud, fraudulent misrepresentation. And this suppression of early treatment, I quickly perceived that this is something akin to negligent homicide. I'm speaking of what's on the law books that a prosecutor could actually go after. And so I began to examine this story as is a potential for being a massive true crime book. But I knew I needed a top medical authority to to help me navigate all of this medical. Information, And that's the part of the story that I think is so interesting is I, I knew I needed a really top guy, really the best. But he also had to be questioning the orthodoxy that we were being presented with. So, I mean, I, I needed both of these qualities to be fulfilled in the same man. And just by this bizarre, I don't know if it's luck or coincidence or divine grace, um, it so happened that the man I was seeking lived two miles from my house. I didn't have to go far.
0: <laughs> well, that's, that's wonderful. And I look forward to reading the book and, uh, and reading this, uh, this crime novel. You know, listen, I, I've heard Peter say before that had we pushed early treatment at the beginning of the pandemic, we could have saved somewhere upwards of 80 to 90% of the people that otherwise died from this disease. Do you still stand by that, Peter?
2: Well, you know, Jeff, I did a calculation and and we put on the final touches of the book and it has to do with the learning curve because right away we didn't know what to do. And I looked at the milestones of my uh, three sets of Senate testimony, two in the US, one in Texas. And so when we actually considered the time the number of deaths and the learning curve, uh, as we sit here today, two-thirds of deaths and hospitalizations could have been spared. Um, well, we know that uh, uh, going forward, about 95% of hospitalizations and deaths are avoidable with early treatment.
0: Yeah, no, no doubt about it. and. Peter, bring us up to speed now on the state of the art of the vaccine. What are you you seeing? What are you recommending? And what should people know about the current state of the COVID-19 vaccine?
2: You know, we heard by report that in the United States, 84 million doses of the messenger RNA vaccines are going to go to waste, uh, showing there's been a giant loss of enthusiasm for the vaccines. You know, people who used to... Be fighting in line for these vaccines, that there was going to be a vaccine shortage. These things are, are basically being uh, wasted. June 5th, uh, no, I'm sorry, June is coming up very shortly. Uh, not June 5th, I believe 15th. Uh, the Novavax application will be heard by the U.S. Uh, FDA. Novavax will be the first uh, antigen-based uh, vaccine. Uh, it's stock tanked because in the briefing booklet, there were cases of myocarditis, even with five micrograms of the Wuhan uh, wild type spike protein. Now, Novavax is still believed probably would be safer than the genetic vaccines, but it it, it almost certainly is obsolete. And when the Omicron variant uh, became the dominant variant, Novavax was the first company to announce they have to make a new vaccine, that they're not gonna cover Omicron. Yet, in fact, the vaccine they're presenting to the FDA is unchanged. Pfizer and Moderna have also been unchanged now, and in my view are largely obsolete. We have data with Omicron on third and fourth vaccines, randomized, not randomized, with vaccine efficacy way less than 50%, lasting only a month or two, and then recently a paper from the NIH, Froman and colleagues, uh, has demonstrated actually a weakened immune response in those who have taken the most boosters, meaning they actually have a weaker response against COVID-19 respiratory illness. Uh, So we're starting to get signals of either immune distraction or an immune disabling effect of repeated injections of genetic material in production of the spike protein. So,
0: Peter, is that why I am seeing in my practice some of the sickest COVID patients are those that are fully vaccinated and boosted, and the unvaxed that gets COVID seem to do much better? And John, you know, you wrote this book. You got Peter's help in doing so. Um, I'm sure you uh, got a uh, a kind of honorary degree in COVID in in writing this thing. Uh, wh- what were what were some of your conclusions uh, when you finished this book?
3: Well, I. I sensed early on, um, having been interested in the Spanish flu of 1918. I lived in Vienna, Austria for many years, and the Spanish flu, it really hit Vienna hard. You had these soldiers in the Austro-Hungarian army coming home to Vienna, and they brought this pathogen with them, and it rapidly spread through the city. And a lot of famous artists and writers died of this thing um, when they were quite young. So I became very interested in that years ago. And so when SARS-CoV-2 arrived, one of the things that I observed all those years, you know, what we were being told in terms of pandemic preparation is, you know, what if the next great respiratory pandemic is something akin to the 1918 Spanish flu? So that was kind of my reference point. It quickly seemed to me, I would say by the end of March, mid to late March, I was reading the reports coming out of Italy. And the Italians, the, Inst- the Superior Institute of Health actually had a press conference, I think on March the 16th, 2020, in which these guys came out and said, you know, this appears to be predominantly affecting older people. And so it became evident to me, even as a layman, that there's there's market risk stratification in this. That was the first thing. Like, it does seem like there are certain risk groups that could be identified. And if you could identify these risk groups, you know, perhaps you could ascertain ways to diminish the risk, or uh, uh, some, some, some means of keeping this high risk group out of the hospital. So when I got to know Dr. McCullough, I saw that he was approaching this with a distinctly medical mind, but he was kind of drawing the same logical conclusion. Like let's identify who could really get into trouble with this, and try and take measures to prevent them from getting into trouble with this. Um, so, the other thing that I noticed, there's a lot of talk. We were very polarized, as you gentlemen know. You know, the other side from the hysteria are is this very skeptical spirit that you know, maybe it hasn't even been isolated. Maybe the thing, you know, is just kind of a phantom or um, indistinguishable from the the, uh, the the seasonal flu. you know, this kind of talk. So I became very interested in, you know, who is it that really gets into trouble with this thing? And here in the state of Texas, one thing that kept coming up again and again in my research was Hispanic people, the so-called essential workers, grocery people, people that work in the food industry, seem to have a higher risk profile, particularly those who are overweight, And had blood sugar, elevated blood sugar, diabetes, untreated high blood sugar. They were the ones that really seemed to get into trouble with this. Pardon me, I'm just kind of randomly musing on this. So, you know, my interest in the early treatment um, was, you know, how do you how do you figure out who these people are? And and the thing that I noticed is the NIH had this. You know, categorical guideline, which was basically contained (laughs) no guidelines for treatment. I mean, the infamous document was uh, October 6, 2020. And I noticed there was just no no acknowledgement of the risk stratification and no acknowledgement that absolutely anything could be done to help people. Um, so, th- anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I was a little discombobulated, I had to run to my mother's house to help with something. Um, but, so, um, my, my conclusion is, is that the crime lies in this sort of pulling a veil across the eyes of the public health system, the mainstream media, of anything that could help people, and it was done from the outset in a categorical way. As soon as you saw any promising treatment modality that was offered, like Didier Raoul in France, who's a prominent microbiologist, he was suggesting hydroxychloroquine, there was some observational data, and as soon as it came out of his mouth, he was immediately shot down. So, th- therein lies this, this suspicion that this thing was just deliberately misrepresented and in a very fraudulent way, and um, these treatment modalities were deliberately suppressed.
0: Because of the biopharmaceutical complex?
3: Yes, what we concluded, and it's, it's just a matter of tracking the public utterances of these prominent members of the complex, Bill Gates being a very conspicuous and vocal member of the complex. I mean, he, he was already early April 2020. He is, I think, a representative example of the complex. He would always make two utterances practically in the same sentence. It was always, there's no, there's no effective treatment. Perhaps remdesivir could, could have some efficacy. But really, all we can do is isolate, follow the guidelines, the social distancing guidelines of our health authorities, and wait for a vaccine. You know, which my foundation is feverishly working to develop. And the only thing, he claimed, that will enable us to go back to normal is when every man, woman, and child on earth receives the vaccine and there was this kind of emphatic almost monomaniacal insistence that the only game in town is mass vaccination. So it seems that it was a PSYOP, suppression of early therapy, maximizing the crisis and the fear of it, It was a massive PSYOP in order to prepare the entire human race to receive hastily developed vaccines.
0: Wow, that's pretty frightening. And so we now know, uh, you know, Pfizer, when they first came out, they told us their vaccine was greater than 90% effective at preventing the disease and transmission. We now know that's a lie. The original documents now that are being released show us that they knew better. We now know that Johnson & Johnson vaccine now has his black box warning that we ought not really even use it anymore, yet millions and millions of people continue to be vaccinated. Peter, what does is, what is the future hold, do you think, for COVID-19, the disease, and the path forward? Well, <laughs> it's that booster shot, I'm telling you. It's coming on the third time. We lost Peter again, but I know what he was saying. So, Peter has this protocol, this, this uh, sequence multi-drug protocol, and we, we, John is still here. We lost Peter, John. Peter's got this uh, sequence multi-drug treatment protocol that starts out with a nasal throat rinse with a virusidal agent like providone, iodine, betadine, or I use dilute hydrogen peroxide because when you spill it, it doesn't stain your clothes. Uh, so that's the mainstay of treatment. Even if you go to a super spreader event and you're not sick and you use that, first signs of being ill, even if it's not COVID, if it's just a cold, it works, followed by um, multiple medications that we have that are available. Yes, we have ivermectin, even hydroxychloroquine. I still believe they're most effective. Vitamin D, C, um, quercetin, zinc, and so forth. We have medications that work, especially when we use them early. And I think that is the state of the art. I've treated multiple COVID patients now over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Treat early, treat aggressively. They do fine. Uh, I have not had a patient that have needed hospitalization and I can't even remember the last time. So I think we're heading towards a path where more and more docs um, are able to use early treatment, uh, where the virus seems to be less lethal than it ever has been in the past, Um, and uh, and that that will be the path forward as people like John and Peter uh, tell a wonderful narrative, uh, tell their story via book and media. Uh, The message is getting out. The jig is up. We no longer can trust these three-letter healthcare organizations. We need to get back to the basics, trusting your local family physician uh, and doing what just makes common sense uh, as we treat COVID-19 and other illnesses. So, John, thank you for joining us. Peter, sorry we lost you. Uh, Mark, great being with you for another episode of Informed Dissent, and we'll have to do this again real soon. Thank you. You've been listening to Informed Dissent with Dr. Jeff Barkey. Board certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Informed dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics.